As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, I was thinking... Outside of, like, crisis, like, outside of, like, you know, spring of 2020 and obviously the sort of, like, year, year and a half, like, surrounding the great financial crisis, I think right now is probably maybe the most interesting time we've seen in a long time uh, for the Fed and central banking. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. I mean, we spent... um you know, immediately after 2008, there was obviously a lot to digest, but then it was just years and years of basically the same thing, really low inflation uh, and central banks kind of arguing whether or not to wind down various stimulus yeah. programs, um, what exits were going to look like. But now it feels like that conversation has just been ramped up, you know, times 100 because you actually do have inflation, you still have a lot of emergency liquidity lingering in the system, and the question is, what are central banks going to do about it, and can they actually navigate clamping down on price pressures without destabilizing the entire economic recovery? A hundred percent. Like, you know, we paid a lot of attention to the Fed and other big central banks, like you know, for the last 10 years. But in retrospect, like it's kind of always the same story. It's like inflation is mild. It's not quite at target. Maybe it will be. How low can employment go? Oh, it turns out it can go lower. Maybe they'll try to hike a bit. Maybe they it was a little premature. Wait a little. It's like it was like pretty repetitive. And right now, what I think is interesting is beyond just the price pressure, like an extremely wide disagreement. And some people think, oh, it's going to fade because things are going to normalize. People worry about some sort of wage price inflationary spiral, like lots of legitimate economists and people uh, sort of like coming at the problem or the question in good faith can arrive at extremely different um, views for the next couple of years, I would say, uh, from this starting point. Absolutely. And I think we've spoken about this before, but the thing that complicates everything is that we don't really have a historical framework or parallel to look at because we yeah. didn't experience anything like the 2020 pandemic. Um, well, I, I guess we had Spanish flu, but the crisis response wasn't quite the same. And so everyone is sort of trying to figure out what exactly is going on. And to be honest, I don't think anyone has a foolproof or bulletproof playbook just yet. 
Right. And also, and of course, in addition to the pandemic itself, we had an extraordinary amount of uh, fiscal stimulus this time around. We had the Fed uh, at the summer of 2020 sort of adopting a new framework where they would uh, intentionally allow things to overshoot. So there is a lot to unpack. It's very new. Everything is different. And uh, we are going to uh, we're going to talk about how to make heads or tails of this and what's going on. Excellent. Looking forward to it. So our guest has actually been on uh, the podcast before, but a very long time ago, way back in 2016. And we just talked to him back then about the sort of the art of Fed watching. Well, now Fed watching is uh, mm-hmm. actually is really putting it into practice these days. Uh, we're going to be speaking to Tim Dewey. He is the chief U.S. economist at SGH Macro. He is also a professor uh, of economics at the University of Oregon. And I think he's had a very good feel for both uh, inflationary pressures and how the Fed would uh, likely respond to them over the last year uh, in his writings on Twitter and so forth. So, uh, Tim, thank you so much for coming back on Odd Lots. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So in retrospect, are we right that like 2015, 2016, 2017, uh, Pretty boring from a Fed perspective, at least compared <laughs> to what we're dealing with now. Yeah, the, the, the never-ending expansion was going to get old there pretty soon uh, from a Fed-watching perspective, that, that's for sure. Um, of course, you didn't want it to end the way it ended, right, uh, right. unfortunately. So what is it about the current period that makes it um, so unusual or so interesting for central bank watchers such as yourself? Well, it's, it's the uncertainty. We had gone into the pandemic with a with a sense that we knew, right? We knew the basic economic framework that we were going to be working with, you know, for the foreseeable future, and that basic framework uh, you know, assumed that demand was really always and everywhere a problem in the sense of of being too low, and we also thought that inflation was very very sticky around two percent, and these were reasonable things to believe, you know, in the pre pandemic period. Because that's that's the story that actually worked out well and seemed to be proved by the evidence, uh, and especially the sticky inflation part. We'd seen sticky inflation for 25 years, around you know two percent. You know, we went into the pandemic with with a really established consensus framework about on how the economy worked, and the pandemic has really blown that apart, uh, at least in the near term, because a lot of those predictions of, of persistently weak demand persistently slow job growth, persistently low inflation near 2%. All of those uh, um, predictions just did not work out as expected in the in the post-pandemic era. This gets to sort of bigger picture question that I've been asking myself a lot over the last six months or a year, which is like, we can list all the ways this current moment is extraordinary, right? So we're still in a uh, public health emergency by many measures, we had a very uh, intense Omicron wave. We had a Delta wave before that. That's not over. There are still many disruptions. They seem to be winding down, but they're going away. Uh, but they, but there's still many um, uh, sort of interventions and masks and school issues. Then, of course, we had the uh, massively expansion, the aggressive fiscal stimulus. And, of course, uh, the Fed, which made a decision in 2020 that they did not want to make the same mistakes they did in the past. And they said, OK, we're going to let it overshoot this time. But 
my question is, why wouldn't things return to normal? Why, after the sort of pandemic ends, why wouldn't it necessarily be safe to say, okay, we're just going to go back to the sort of like the medium economy that we had pre-crisis? I I think that's a, a an excellent question. Um, yeah, I think you know particularly with respect to the inflation story, uh, that inflation trend, uh, the pre-pandemic you know trend of you know two percent inflation we'd seen for twenty five years, that was you know presumably a very sticky trend, and there's good reason to think you know, that that you don't want to just sort of turn your back on on a deeply established trend like that. Uh, now, on the other hand, one idea that I, I play around with quite a bit, is that the pre-pandemic economy was more finely balanced than we appreciated, that we essentially had just enough labor market pressure to keep downward pressure on unemployment, uh, keep pulling people into the labor market, keep wages rising in nominal and real terms, uh, and also you're not, not having it overheat in the sense that there were any real threats to that 2% in, inflation trend. That, though, uh, might have been a more unique economy than we, we realized uh, by the time we got to 2018, 2019. How much of the inflation pressures do you see as down to supply issues um, such as the various logistics problems that we've been talking about on the show over the past year or so versus demand coming from consumers, many of whom, you know, in terms of household balance sheets, seem to be in better positions than they were going into the crisis. You know, I, I get concerned when we try to say that, that uh, you know, things are either demand or supply related, because I'm not sure that we can really tease out those uh, factors as easily as, as we think we can. You know, demand and supply are like two sides of a, or, or let's like a pair of scissors, right? And so both both are cutting the paper. So which 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 blade is, is doing the job is is hard to in, in many cases determine. I've thought that demand was a large factor here. That if we look at factors like nominal spending power on the part of consumers, uh, that they they really were were spending more in nominal terms and basically stretching the ability of the economy to produce uh, those goods and services. So I, I've thought that, that the supply angle has been overplayed uh, and the demand angle underplayed. So that's, that's where I sit on this subject. We look forward into the future. I, I do think it still relies, depends a lot about how much consumers are, are able to and um, willing to accept. And it looks right now that they they have the, the capacity to continue to absorb price increases. And I suspect we'll be, continue to do so, uh, although maybe not at a you know, six or seven or eight percent annualized rate as we've been you know, as, as we've kind of been seeing. So we're like 10 minutes into this conversation already. And I think it's really interesting that inflation dominates the story right now. But the labor market and the sort of the other half of the Fed's dual mandate just been incredibly strong. And no one, I think, would have predicted sub 4% unemployment. Uh, so, you know, early 2022, or I guess we're at, uh, we're, we're at 4% right now. My question is, in your view, was there a way to have this fast of a labor market recovery without the inflationary pressures that we've seen? Or are these inflationary pressures the inevitable byproduct of an economy that moved so fast uh, back to normal? The rapid recovery of the labor market was certainly unexpected. And 
you know, the Federal Reserve and the, um, you know, the U.S. government dumped enormous amounts of resources uh, into the economy on the assumption that, that it would not recover uh, very quickly, and, and, and it did. Had we known really that COVID, you know, the COVID shock in 2022, 20, excuse me, 2020, was going to be more like a snowstorm than a persistent source of demand, loss of demand, I'm not sure that we would have dumped that much policy stimulus into it. We'd be at a situation where, where the labor market did recover quickly. It's very much true that going you know, into the, the pandemic, we would not have expected labor demand to, to rebound quite as quickly as, as it did. And that was really our experience in the last, last couple of recessions. Uh, the fact that that recovery did happen very quickly probably helped contribute to inflationary pressures when you take into account the additional stimulus that we added onto the um, uh, system. I, in some ways, it comes down to me for as a question of, you know, what, was the original COVID shock like a, a, a big demand shock, like the, the financial crisis in 2007, 2009 era? Or was it more like a, a snowstorm? Uh, and you would expect a fairly rapid recovery after a snowstorm. Uh, and and that's, that's kind of what, what we've seen. Uh, and I do think, you know, that, that the, the additional stimulus we put on top of that then helped contribute to, to the, the inflationary pressures we see now. How do you disaggregate the speed of that recovery from the policy response, though? Right. I think that's a, that's a great question. That would be the subject of a <laughs> thousand PhD dissertations in the future. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that, that I'm, I'm able to take a, a, a stand on that so, uh, at this point. I really, this comes down to, in some sense, uh, really what kind of framework you had going into uh, the crisis or, or were adjusting that framework. I think when we started seeing the economy bounce back in the middle of uh, 2020, it really started to strike me that there's a lot of underlying structural, or there's a lot of underlying structural recovery going on here. And uh, we probably don't need quite the amount of stimulus as we're, as we're putting into the system. Uh, but but you know, in some sense, that was, that was a hunch, a, a feel for the data um, more than anything else. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So, Tim, you mentioned um, frameworks going into this. And one of the criticisms now that we've seen um, the return of inflation or this new inflation is that either traditional economics failed to predict this or (laughs) uh, heterodox economics like modern monetary theory failed to predict this. And it kind of feels like everyone <laughs> everyone is criticizing everything at, at the moment. But do you think that's fair? Did economists, you know, fail to see this coming? So forecasting is hard and the underlying structure of the economy could shift. Uh, and so, you know, this is something that could uh, hammer uh, an economist, no matter what their what their initial framework is. And so I, I try to be uh, uh, fairly humble in thinking about these kinds of, of economic developments, because I really do believe you have to be flexible to you know, basically react in real time to you know, what, the, what the data is telling you. And I don't know if there's really a failure of any one given sort of strand of, of economic thought or macroeconomic framework. It's more of um, what I see just a, a willingness to, you know, evolve from whatever your fixed position is as that incoming data uh, uh, arrives. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that data, because I do think that, you know, even I think winter, late 2020, early 2021, the COVID numbers were picking up again. We didn't have a vaccine. There was a lot of reason to think that, oh, if we didn't get like another round of substantial fiscal expansion, we could like have another downturn. You were like pretty, I think, pretty optimistic then. And I think, you know, starting in the summer or maybe the spring of 2021, I think you were pretty concerned that maybe uh, the the accelerating inflation wasn't just a temporary thing. It wasn't just going to be base effects, that there was something more sustained here and that the Fed at some point would attempt to uh, play catch up and ramp up the number of hikes sooner and faster. So what was it that you were seeing in the data and how did you then sort of like synthesize that through some sort of macro framework that I think at least uh, so far has proven to be a good read on the inflationary pressures? I think the first thing is that even with that 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 wave in the late 2021, early, you know, that, yeah. that wave, or excuse me, late 2020, I think even at that point, we started to recognize that you know, subsequent waves of the virus were going to have less and less of an economic impact. Uh, and so that, that became a, a, a critical sort of element to my thinking going forward is that we were going to continue to have COVID, uh, that it was going to be more endemic than, than certainly zero COVID at that point was, was not really a possibility. And that you know, we would learn to, to live around the, the pandemic. So that was what was one element. Uh, the other element that I, I just couldn't shake was how tight job markets were getting. Uh, and this really speaks to the, the perhaps finely balanced economy prior to the pandemic. Uh, when I saw 
how quickly job openings surged, you know, the, the, the fairly slow response of, of labor supply. And, and I'd say the fairly slow response of labor supply is, is pretty typical uh, that we see in post-recession uh, periods. I, it really started to say to me that there's, there's a lot more pressure in this economy than, than you know, I think the, the Fed at the point was thinking about. And was probably, um, you know, the Fed at that point, I think, had, had estimates of, of where full employment was going to, to, to be that were, were optimistic uh, relative to what I was seeing in, in the labor market. So that sort of said to me, look, there's going to be a lot of pressure in this labor market. It's going to be, create a lot of pressure in upward, upward pressure in wages. That's going to be the, the kind of thing that can really sustain inflationary pressures over time. Uh, and I felt eventually that was something that was going to catch up to the Fed. It does feel like the Fed was very focused on this idea of, yes, jobs have rebounded. Um, you know, the employment recovery has been stronger than expected, but we're still digging ourselves out of a COVID related right. hole, I guess. Um, and we still have further to go. Were they wrong to do that in, in retrospect? Uh, I think the Fed did not basically adjust their their you know models as as quickly as the data would suggest that they should i think that they became although the although the fed says that they think you know full employment's a moving target uh they became very much attached to the pre-pandemic economy we all liked the pre-pandemic economy i think 2019 would have been you know we would have thought 2019 was a great year if we'd been able to enjoy it uh because 2020 came down on us so hard so there was really good reason to, to look at that 2018-2019 period and think that's where we need to get back to. And I think the Fed just did not um, just held on to that vision for uh, too long and, and as a consequence sort of missed the development of, of what I think are, are still substantial uh, inflationary pressures, even, even if you know, even if they ease off, do they ease off enough to get us back to 2% is still a, an open question. I want to press you on this a little bit further, because I remember like post great financial crisis, one of the uh, criticisms then is like, oh, we can't get back to 2006, 2007 and that, oh, maybe there's something structural. And it turned out it was kind of just a matter of time. And the Fed back then, I would say, and you know, grossly sort of like underestimated for a long time, like how low the unemployment rate could get. Uh, without spurring uh, labor market pressure, which I guess, again, bring me to the question, is the error of like, oh, we want to get back to sub 4% unemployment, or is the error in thinking that it can happen that fast? Because we are, I mean, we just had a huge uh, jobs number in January. We are still bringing a lot of people back into the labor market. You know, I think we could argue that in the, 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 um, post financial crisis era, the the Fed did make an error, and and I think again for the for the same reason we became enamored with a, a pre you know a pre financial market you know sort of framework financial crisis yeah. sort of framework, and and you know we saw right in the in the post era post um, uh, crisis era uh, estimates of the short run uh, natural rate of unemployment rise. Right. And right. we all now think we all look back at that and say, no, that was that was crazy. Right. That, that never happened. And so we sort of took that same framework and applied it to, to this crisis. And we didn't raise our estimates of the short term uh, rate of, of, of un natural unemployment. And maybe we should have. Right. 
And so, you know, it's kind of a question, do you always get caught fighting the last war? And, and I think, again, I, I have no problem. That was the right thing to think of in, in the spring of 2020. That was our framework, and that was a reasonable framework. Uh, it was kind of just a, a slow adjustment to, to maybe that framework's not quite the right, right way we should be thinking about the economy in the, the post-pandemic era. Is there something about the Fed's structure or culture that makes it hard for them to be flexible or to pivot as the data changes? I think that institutions in general can be slow to pivot. And, and you see this, I think, in, in you know, any kind of, of bureaucratic structures. Uh, so you know, once you've spent 10 years developing your models and your framework, you're going to have a hard time you know, breaking from that framework. Uh, so I, I think that's a, just a, a natural consequence of, of, of what happens you know, within institutions that you know, the Fed could not adjust uh, as quickly as, as maybe they, sh- they should have. When you say adjust as they should have, was there a uh, could we currently in February 2022 have less inflation than we have right now? Had they done something different? Like what what was the moment in your view in which if they had taken a different tag, maybe started hiking earlier, et cetera, may have uh, allowed us to be in a better situation than we are right now? Like what does that alternate scenario look like to you? Right. And, and given the lags in, in these processes, you know, how, you know, was was by the time we did, you know, the, 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 the fiscal stimulus and the monetary stimulus. And by, by the time we got to 2020, the end of 2021, or excuse me, the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021, was this pretty much already baked in the cake? Really, what we're, we're, we're thinking about is how persistent these inflationary pressures will be going forward. So for me, uh, a couple of things that I think that the, the Fed sh- you know, probably should have thought of, of differently. Um, one is basically the asset purchases, QE. Those were really initially um, put in place to, to deal with financial market functioning, right? If you remember the spring of, of 2020, it's not clear that, that such emergency measures were necessary, really even, even past the middle of, of 2020. Uh, 20 uh, that the you know financial markets had rebounded and were functioning quite well uh, by that point. So you know we did we did years of, of QE that I don't wasn't probably necessary uh, to support the economy. And now we have to sort of think how how is the Fed going to unwind that? The other thing that that I think that a, a critical space here was the Fed. You know, from my perception, was cheerleading fiscal policy, and I think that they they really push back or couldn't do any sort of fiscal or monetary offset, uh, even after that last um, blast of, of fiscal stimulus we had that really you know, gave the economy a good push in, in 2021. Uh, and I think that might have been a real, real error on, on the Fed's part is you know, by, by not sort of by writing off any, any hope of, of any fiscal push or any monetary offset pretty early in, in the process. Also kind of set the stage in motion for, uh, you know, the possible persistence of these inflationary pressures. I want to jump to, I I guess, what the Fed should be doing now, because, you know, on the one hand, as we've been discussing, we have inflation that's been higher than expected. We've had a pretty strong recovery in the jobs market, although, you know, there are some people who say it can get even better. The recovery overall has been quite strong. But again, there are those who argue that in some ways, 
the economy is still quite fragile. There's still a lot going on in the global economy with COVID、um, and various economic pressures that could come back and impact the U.S. So taking all of that together, you know, if you were in the Fed's place right now, what would you be doing? Ah,、uh, that's a, a that that's a great question、um, because. We're in a very. I, I think this is potentially really challenging time for, for monetary policy because if these inflationary pressures have become embedded deeper than the Fed Fed really believes,、uh, then you're you're really coming to the party too late, and you're going to have a, a hard time really really containing these inflationary pressures without creating a, a recession. So, you know, I think the Fed should should. Do a little bit more clearly what I think they're they're kind of positioned to do, and that's to try to get、uh, rates up to something closer to neutral as as quickly as they can.、Uh, so I would probably define that objective at least uh, uh, right now, so that you'd be better prepared in the, the to find that objective more clearly.、Uh, so you'd be better prepared to、uh, adjust policy in in the second half of this year as necessary. And that would mean, you know, I think you're starting out with. It's always a question: Should you start out with 50 basis points?、Um, you know, I think optimally you'd like to be, you know, at at 150 basis points by the second half of this year. And and the Fed's not not positioned to do that, and hasn't hasn't really primed markets to、uh, expect that kind of of rate hike. That's what I would be、uh, thinking about pretty pretty aggressively if if I was、uh, um, you know, the Fed. Yeah, I want to talk about this more, and maybe the idea. Okay, they got there too late. You wrote something in one of your notes a couple of weeks ago that I thought was pretty provocative, and you said, you know, look, historically, when inflation is like this, the answer ends up being it took a recession to bring it down. And so, of course, everyone hopes that you can have sort of like, you know, the the so called smooth landing where just the inflation side goes down, but employment keeps chugging along fine. That'd be great. But talk to us about. You know the historical analogies of like, yeah, this is what it actually took to get、uh, inflation down. Yeah, this is something that that struck me just looking at the charts of of wage growth and、um, uh, particularly inflation in the sort of the the era not associated with with two percent inflation. That really, once you sort of shifted your equilibrium. It was it was pretty sticky. Wage growth really stayed at you know whatever its 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 pre recession level was until until you came to a recession,、uh, and the same was was really true of inflation. So it, it really started to, to to look in the data like to me that、uh, changing these dynamics was was actually very hard、uh, once once they had become established, and it was probably going to be harder than we anticipated, especially since. All of the models, I think, right now are, are calibrated on this pre-pandemic period. So, you know, when inflation never really deviates more than, say, you know, core inflation never deviates more than twenty-five basis points away from、um, uh, the two percent target. In that case, you're fairly fairly easy to see how you could guide the economy back to target、uh, without a recession.、Uh, if you're you know two two hundred four hundred basis points away from target, the historical data suggests you know you you. You guide it back toward a lower number by、uh, by inducing a recession. So that's that's something that's been just sticking in the back of my mind as a as a real risk. You know, going into twenty twenty three in particular, in twenty twenty four, just tells me how much we're all leveraged on the idea 
then inflation is going to ease by the end of this year, sort of on its on its own accord. This might just be um, a question about semantics, but I'd still be curious to get your your response. But if if the only way historically um, to end inflation or avert price pressures is to have a recession and the Fed raises rates and induces a recession. Can we still call that a policy error? <laughs> that's a, um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. Um, the, the policy error would have been made prior to, you know, prior to that point, right? You know, w- one thing I think about is in retrospect, the Fed actually did a pretty good job in the um, post rate financial crisis era, and uh, you know at the time, you know myself included, uh, you know criticized the Fed for maybe moving too aggressively, but you know but we still ended up in the 2017, 2018, 2019 economy, which I think we can all agree was really an excellent economy. We'd like to be back there, and that was managed by essentially you know guidance, loose guidance on a Phillips curve. And then I would argue, you know, later in the crisis, later later in the expansion, some loose guidance on the basis of of you know, not letting the yield curve invert, and that sort of slow and steady return brought us to a good outcome. And we all ended up complaining because inflation was twenty basis points below two percent, and maybe you know that that you know that we should have appreciated that that response more um, than we did at the time. So I I have a really basic question, but, you know, uh, 2% inflation target, in retrospect, maybe it wasn't that bad having years of subpar below target inflation. Like, should we... Should we be trying to, I mean, I know they changed the inflation framework um, to something more flexible, the flexible average targeting stuff, but should we be aiming for something other than 2% inflation at this point in time? You know, there's a, a, a big view that we should be aiming for inflation you know, greater than 2%. We should have picked a 3% or 4% target given our proximity to, to the lower bound that maybe that would raise what we consider the neutral rate of, of nominal interest rates. Uh, and, and I do think there's some uh, truth to that uh, a story, certainly given the, the current circumstances. Uh, I don't know that it's really politically possible for the Fed to target something other than 2%. I think they'd have a hard time basically creating support within Congress for, for a higher inflation target, uh, even though you know, there's, there's reason to think the economy could operate at, at, at 3%. Now, at the same time, I think right now, monetary policy almost has to have an inflationary bias because of the proximity of the lower bound. Uh, You can't really target something less than 2% uh, because you can't can't take the chance of of tipping yourself into a recession uh, when you're this close to the zero bound. Uh, So, you know, this is kind of one interesting thing. I don't know if it has been, you know, properly or completely um, recognized is uh, the Fed really can't sort of do average inflation targeting at 2% right now, right? They can't sort of go into the future and say, we want, we want, we want average 2% over the next five years, average inflation of 2% over the next five years, because that's going to imply some period of, of less than 2% inflation. And, and they can't do that. You know, you mentioned that the 2017, 2018, 2019 economy was uh, pretty good. And I agree. But 2017 was eight years. No, like, you know, yeah, eight years after 
the crisis. And so when I think back to those years, I don't think like, oh, it's so bad that we only had 1.8% unemployment or sorry, inflation. I think like, oh, we had like a pretty big um, employment shortfall for a very long time post GFC. So when we're talking about how good of a job the Fed in retrospect did, do you think like, does that apply, um, uh, apply to the labor side of the mandate as well? I think, again, that's a, that's a good question is, you know, in that post, in that post great financial crisis period, that was certainly a slow period of, of, of recovery relative to, you know, what we would have optimally expected. And I do think this sometimes gets you the question of what can you expect out of monetary policy? Uh, and I think, again, if we go back to that period of time, we all, I think, basically universally agree that we should have had more fiscal policy. And maybe that would have been the thing that would have, have boosted job growth. Now, it may be that neither of those things would have been you know, as important as we, we, we'd like to think it was that, you know, for whatever structural reasons, the economy was just in a low, low growth mode as we had to you know, recover, rebuild the financial system from the um, from the great financial crisis and sort of rebuild the economy from the housing bubble. And also, I think demographics were probably in play there. You know, the boomers were were aging out of the the, the workforce and being replaced by the uh, Gen Xers, which is a demographic hole. And so we actually have the, the opposite right now, where now the um, millennials are going to be aging into their prime working years and their home buying years. That there might have been a, a bit of a demographic weight on the economy in that that post great financial crisis period. Again, it's it's easy to criticize after the fact, but I'm not sure the Fed could have done you know this magic job that that we all sort of thought at the time that they should be doing. So you said something interesting, and that is like, what can we expect out of monetary policy? And I think that's like a very fair question in both directions. You mentioned you know a few minutes ago. Okay, if we really want to crush inflation, we could probably do it by engineering a recession. But we all don't we don't want that to happen. When, when you know, thinking from the Fed's perspective, and they hope, okay, maybe four hikes this year, maybe five, maybe three, something like that. What is the channel via which theoretically these rate hikes do bring down inflation? Like how does it how does a rate hike or any number of rate hikes feed through to real activity and prices? There's this, this typical idea, right, of a Phillips curve, where the idea of the rate hike is to to, to raise unemployment. And essentially, there's a trade-off between unemployment and inflation, and, and we didn't really see that, um, uh, you know, in the in the pre-pandemic era. We thought the Phillips curve was was fairly flat, and so so that's you know was a mechanism we weren't necessarily relying on as heavily. Um, instead, we're relying on I think what would be a more, more vague idea that its financial conditions you know tightened that we'd see possibly monetary policy evolve through through a, a number of different channels where it be you know the the exchange rate would would possibly be higher and that would you know create you know a, a slowing of, of of demand where firms would uh, find themselves facing higher interest costs, and that would flow, slow their their cash flow, and you know, consequently, that would cause them to you know slow back or pull back on um, uh, activity. You could also think about you know whether this how this is operating through home mortgages. So you know, there, there's a number of of channels, but clearly, you know, one way that we've always thought of this is that you know you're you're trying to find a mechanism by which to uh, soften aggregate demand, and you know, historically, you know, areas that that has really been prominent is in 
uh, consumer durables and, and housing. This is the challenge is that can you right, sort of make fine-tuning adjustments at the, at the economy at this point, like we became uh, more accustomed to in the pre-pandemic era, or are you, you know, at the verge of, of, of more major uh, you know, changes in policy that then do have these, these um, uh, pretty dramatic impacts on, on economic activity? As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Thinking about financial markets and one of the things or one of the ideas that set in after the 2008 crisis um, and the Fed's policy response was this idea of a central bank put and that the Fed would always come in um, when markets showed signs of wobbling and stabilize things because they didn't want to risk um, a tightening of financial conditions and you know potentially hitting the real economy. How are we thinking about that aspect of the Fed's policy workings, like its relationship with markets at the moment? Because we have seen stocks fall quite a bit. But part of me feels like the Fed doesn't necessarily care, you know, if big tech um, valuations come down um, to arguably more reasonable multiples. But where I think they might start to get concerned is when something like the credit market starts to show signs of strain. So I, I guess the question is, like, how is the Fed thinking of financial stability? And is there still a possibility here that if markets really start to get pressured that they might um, sacrifice rate hikes, in, you know, in order to preserve them. I agree with you that it's it's not necessarily stock prices or, or big tech prices or Bitcoin prices <laughs> that that's going to be um, influencing monetary uh, policy decisions. You know, obviously, if we had a twenty percent drop in in overnight, that would that would probably be something interesting. But no, it's it's not asset prices. I think you're right. It's 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 a credit or um, 
market functioning. So, you know, obviously the Fed doesn't like the situations we've had um, uh, where, where treasury markets don't seem to be functioning properly. So that would be certainly one issue and, and might apply to uh, quantitative tightening um, going forward, which, which we really haven't talked about. The other thing is if you saw um, corporate debt spreads really widen, that would be, a, I think, a red flag for the Fed that something was, was going wrong. They'd like, you know, they would like credit to be a bit tighter, right? That That's, you know, they want to slow activity, but they don't want those credit spreads to blow out as you often see, you know, before or around a recession. And so that's where, you know, that's where I think you, the Fed would be much more, you know, worried uh, that they needed to reassess what their, what their expectations were. So you mentioned uh, quantitative tightening, and of course, the Fed expanded its balance sheet quite a bit since uh, March 2020. And you hear some members, uh, some regional Fed presidents sometimes talk about, it's like, well, maybe we could do one or two less rate hikes in the short term, but we sort of counteract that by a more rapid wind down of the balance sheet. It's a little unclear what effect that had, highly sort of controversial. What is your view on this sort of like the I guess I don't know if it's a sequencing question or the the impact of quantitative tightening and how they sort of like translate to rate hikes. Like, how do you think about that question? Yeah, I think the Fed has to be really careful about how they approach that that particular question because you know Chair Powell said you know in his press his most recent press conference that there's you know some some capacity to to estimate some trade offs between QT and uh, rate hikes, but but were they something you really wanted to count on? Um, and that's that's you know that's my opinion too. I'm not sure you want to start setting expectations about the path of of rate hikes on the basis of what you're doing with the balance sheet. What the Fed really should think about doing is, okay, here's, here's what our objectives for the balance sheet are. And I, I don't even know if, the, if we're clear on what those are yet, right? Is it about getting the size down? Is it about getting MBS down? How quickly do you want to get this down? Uh, they need to set the objectives for the balance sheet. And they should probably just let that run in autopilot on the back until there's some kind of concern from financial market functioning that they need to adjust on that front. And then just say, that's going on. Here's what we're doing with interest rates. That's really a separate thing rather than trying to you know, say at the front of this, oh, well, if we do this much Q- QT, we're going to get you know, 50 basis points less of, of tightening going forward. I think that's you know, a, a, something that's just too unknown for the Fed to really commit to. I want to just go back to inflation for a little bit because I, I realize we didn't talk about this. And we are recording this on, what is it, February 9th, and I guess CPI is is coming up relatively soon. Do inflation expectations matter? And further to that, should we be differentiating between consumer versus corporate inflation expectations? And I realize that might be, maybe that's an odd question or a new question, but I've been thinking about it because I've been watching your tweets, and you've been focused a lot on what companies are actually saying about price increases. And you made the point that shareholders seem to be rewarding companies who say that they're going to raise their prices in response to cost pressures. And so I guess the question is, most consumers seem to think that a lot of the inflation pressures are still transitory and that things like used car prices are going to get better. But on the other hand, companies seem to have entirely different motivations and therefore different ways of thinking about this. So how, how are you thinking about expectations broadly? 
So I'm not convinced that consumers right now have a good sense of really what, what inflation is going to be out five years in the future or 10 years in the future. It would be amazing if they did, wouldn't it? I Yeah, I think that would be really, really amazing. More likely to me is that those long-term inflation expectations adjust as the short-term inflation you know, remains sticky above those, those current long-term inflation numbers. You know, right now we know that short-term inflation expectations are, are elevated, um, and consequently, if that continues to be met, right? If those expectations continue to be met, then that will probably put expectat- upward ex- pressure on, on inflation expectations over those long-term. So, I think when the Fed, you know, looks at these long-term inflation expectation numbers as as if they're they're really signaling some some intense um, attitudes about long-term inflation on the part of consumers. Um, I think that's that's probably misleading that those are almost certainly lagging indicators. So especially after a 25 year period of very low inflation. Now, I do think that what firms are telling us right now, uh, so they're telling us essentially they can raise prices and they're not getting any consumer pushback. uh, That tells me two things uh, is that there's lots of nominal spending power. Also, that that consumers are expecting higher prices and willing to pay it because they they have that nominal spending power. That suggests to me, again, sort of more of an of a embedded inflation dynamic than, than we would like to see. You know, earlier in the conversation, we talked about this idea of like, inevitably, policymakers fight the last war. And we, you know, it's obvious why that happens. But there are some elements of the current economy, even with elevated inflation, that strike me and potentially like are much better than they were pre-crisis. And so we see the fastest wage growth, at least currently happening at lower income scales. It seems like there is a potential, you know, for years, Larry Summers, great stagnation, like very mediocre uh, productivity numbers uh, for the 10 years after the great financial crisis. It seems like there's a potential here for capital expenditure to maybe kick into a higher gear on the matter of, you know, people bemoaned for years inequality. Well, you know, it's like in a in a tight labor market, obviously the power shifts somewhat to workers. I mean, that by definition almost. Is there a potential here for the jolt that we've seen to kick us into a superior equilibrium when all is said and done? Right. And I, I think about this um, a lot is, you know, obviously we want to get back to a, a, at least as good place in 2018, 2019, but maybe even a better place, right. right? Because we'd like to see, you know, productivity be higher, right? And maybe does that require some investment? And is that investment something we're only going to see if we, if we run the economy hot, right? right? And so is there a potential here to get to a better place? And I, I think you're, the answer is yes, there is that potential. And I just think it's how do you moderate the economy during that adjustment? Because I think, you know, what, what Chairman Powell has said has been, I think, generally correct in that um, uh, if you want to, you know, maintain and extend these benefits, you need to you know, basically have inflation under control. And if you don't get inflation under control, you know, we're going to end up with these instabilities that uh, eventually, you know, prompt us to create a recession. So even if you're getting a jolt. Can you have too much of a good thing in the short run that you actually lose some of those long run benefits? And I think that's the concern that the the Fed should have at, at this juncture. 
Well, Tim, I mean, I, I think that's like a that's a great spot to leave it. And it does seem like, yeah, there is some there are reasons to be excited, but can they get it just right? Seems like an incredible challenge for the Fed in 2022. So maybe uh, maybe we'll have you on in December again of this year, and we'll like uh, we'll see how they did with the hikes, assuming they hike. Yeah, no, that, that's great, and we'll see. You know, if inflation moderates back toward two percent, as many people expect, then the Fed is going to look brilliant because you know we'll be it will be near neutral uh, with a you know a pretty tight job market and uh, inflation back to two percent, and that's that's you know the optimal outcome here. All right. Well, knock on wood. I don't have any wood, but uh, knock on wood <laughs> that that is the uh, the set of conditions at the end of this year. Tim uh, Dewey, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. enjoyed that Tracy I mean I think it's clear regardless like this is going to be a tricky year for the Fed because obviously it wants to consolidate its gains it wants to as Tim mentioned at the end it wants to sort of preserve the potential for the benefits that you get from a hot economy while making the economy less hot but also not <laughs> so hot so less hot that we're in a recession not it's so gonna be less a hot <laughs> yeah something like that less hot but not too less hot yeah, I think that's right. I, the other thing that stood out to me was, you know, Tim's point about how difficult it is to separate supply from demand issues at, at the moment. Mm -hmm. But I kind of I sort of follow that to a different conclusion, which is I, I still think a lot of the demand that we're seeing is actually a result of the supply shortages and people are, you know, just getting things right. when they can and sort of stocking up and seeing a bunch of other people improve their houses and do this and that and, and jumping in so that they're not left behind. But I mean, it does it does just highlight how difficult it is at the moment for for policymakers. And, and I know it's their job and everyone likes to criticize them, but it does seem like a particularly challenging time. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do think like the the sort of like oh did the massive like boom in demand that we saw in 2020 and 2021 turn into gluts in 2022 yeah. and 23 uh as you've written a lot about the sort of bullwhip effect is like is a under discussed scenario still like we don't really know like you know how long it's going to go but to your question and you asked that important question like and tim has been pointing it out it's like if companies are saying like, well, shareholders, we a yeah. we can raise prices. Like Chipotle is like, yeah, we can raise the price of a burrito without hitting demand. And B, investors are rewarding us for raising the prices of a burrito without hitting demand. Then that is like a sort of like level of corporate motivation that could sustain uh, sustain price increases for some time. Totally. And this to me is, you know, when people are saying, oh, inflation expectations don't matter anymore. They're looking at consumers. And I kind of I agree with that. But I really do think company inflation expectations matter quite a lot because they have the pricing power um, and those are eventually going to feed into consumer expectations. Um, so I, I think that's a really important point. Um, and possibly, you know, one of the things that the Fed might have gotten right uh, in recent years is its point about monopsony and, and big companies and pricing power. And we might start to see that um, or we might really start to see the impact of that over the next uh, year or so. 
Yeah, I mean, everyone is like criticizing uh, Elizabeth Warren and the White House for pointing out uh, the sort of like the corporate profitability driven inflation. But, you know, you look, look, you know, know, yesterday, um, February 8th, Chipotle earnings came out and it's like they're doing very well and they see more pricing power and their margins are holding up well. And they're raising prices in part because they can make more money when they raise prices. And so the companies that can do that are in a position to dictate prices are obviously doing really well. There's just like so many, uh, there's so many moving parts to this. And I thought that was a uh, very helpful conversation. Can I just say, I've been in New York about a week and I've had Chipotle like two times now. It is so good. I missed it so much. Uh, They didn't have Chipotle. There's no uh, Chipotle in Hong Kong. No, there's also just a broader shortage of good Mexican food. But yeah, I missed it. It's it's worth the price increase for me, at least for now. <laughs> You're one of the consumers. Yeah. Uh, fresh back out of American soil who's like willing <laughs> to absorb any price. Price increase. price insensitive for for American Mexican food. All right. Um, Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Tim Dewey, on Twitter. He is at Tim Dewey. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. could you do if your data was working for you and not against you with bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems you get easy access to the details you want optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of visit bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more